You have to stay on top of trends. Today's leaders always need to be learning. In this environment of limited resources, the only way to remain competitive is your ability to leverage your most important resource. Welcome to Your Evolving Leadership Journey. In this program, we'll dive into leadership fundamentals that are essential to your success. Now, here's your host, Tom Crea. Good Monday morning. Welcome to Voice America Radio, another episode of Your Evolving Leadership Journey with yours truly, Tom Crea. Each week, I invite an expert to take us on a deep dive into his or her specialty. And today, we have the privilege of speaking with Carol Sanford. Before we explore her book and pick her brain, a little bit about why we're here. This show is for any leader who believes in continuous learning. And here's my journey so far. I start my career as an infantry officer where I learn some lessons in humility. Then I go to aviation, or lessons in humility. In time, I finally develop enough skills to do what I love, want to be doing most, and that's flying the Black Hawk helicopter. And now I'm faced with some leadership challenges. And first, an important lesson in learning how to empower. Then I learn how to, how to delegate. And this is where I have experiences that will shape how I will lead for the rest of my career. A couple of years later, I'm in a muddy cornfield. I find myself having a heart-to-heart conversation with a junior officer. Now, Carol might say to you that I'm thinking I'm giving him feedback. I'm holding him accountable. and We're going to talk about that today because um, she's got a different take on things. Carol describes herself as a contrarian. Anyway, to continue, my success depends upon his. And when I know that he gets it, I discover that I enjoy developing leadership in others more than I do flying helicopters, something I never thought would be possible. Fast forward to the end of my career, and I'm running an ROTC program, Leadership Development, where we transform college students into combat officers. Leadership Development, it's what I love. And like you, my journey continues. We're here today because I honestly believe that I'm a product of the best leadership development culture in the world. We can debate that. But I've invested in this show because all too often, I've discovered that people like you get thrust into a management position and they haven't had any leadership training, or more specifically, development, which we'll talk about. You learn through trial and error, and it doesn't have to be that way. So I've taken time to map out this schedule of experts. And when I come across a great book like Carol's, and I know the author has similar values, I want to share that with you. So let me in a, let you in a little secret first, and that is there are a number of book services out there that offer book summaries, and that's how I initially found Carol and her book, The Regenerative Business. And I've, I've subscribed to Soundview book summaries for decades now, and I enjoy reading the summaries, and now I get to meet great people like Carol who want to help you out just as much as I do. So here's what we ask in return. When you find value in this show, be sure to like, share, and spread the word. You'll find everything related to this show at YourEvolvingLeadershipJourney.com. Check out the schedule to see who's next, look at the topics, catch up any any of the episodes you've missed, and continue the discussion with like-minded individuals in our LinkedIn group. Again, you'll find everything at YourEvolvingLeadershipJourney.com. So now let's meet today's expert, Carol Sanford. She works with executive leaders who see the possibility to change the nature of work through developing people and work systems that ignite motivation everywhere. Now, that excites me, and I hope it excites you as well. And you could read her full bio at carolsanford.com. But let me tell you why I asked Carol to join us. If you're a regular listener of this show, you know that servant leadership is important to our listeners. Carol's work is deeply rooted in the belief that people can grow and develop beyond what their leaders or anyone else sees possible. To be increasingly entrepreneurial, innovative, and responsible in their business and personal actions. She approaches her work as an ecosystem with stakeholders to the business in order to create the marketplace positioning, the organizational conditions, and human capability for people to innovate and contribute. Through a Socratic and contrarian approach, backed by research and extensive case stories and testimonials, Carol challenges and educates leaders to reimagine everything they currently know about strategic thinking, leadership, management, and work design. And that's exactly what happened to me when I read her book. 
In the end, she guides people to find their individual and organizational promise beyond ableness, embedding enormous possibilities into an organization. In addition to no more feedback, which we'll talk about now, Carol is the author of The Regenerative Business, The Responsible Entrepreneur, and The Responsible Business. Now, let me extend a very warm welcome to Carol. We appreciate you taking the time to share your insights with us. Thank you, and I loved your opening story. Oh, great. Well, I think this is going to be a fun conversation. I'm looking forward to chatting with you. So from your book, Carol, you share some personal details, and we had a little brief conversation prior. Um, her One of her initial experiences was different than mine in the Army. She went to San Jose, or worked at San Jose State University, and that, of course, always shapes how you think about things. So that was a formative experience from you based on what I read in your book. If you could share a little bit about that and how it leads into No More Feedback. I joined the program, um, a multidisciplinary program, but landed eventually in the urban planning school, which is where one of my degrees was. And the guy who was leading it was a good guy, really good guy, come out of the military. And he had learned these 360-degree feedback processes, which are very popular. And I was immediately subjected to that. And subjected is a carefully chosen word because no one said, would you be willing to do this? Do you believe in this? No, even here's the value you get out of it. And in the process, I was shocked by many things. One was how much they had standardized what the feedback was about. It's against a set of competencies. And none of the things that I felt like I really brought were in those competencies. And so I was getting lots of feedback from people and things at first I didn't care about. And second, didn't have anything to do with why I was in education in a graduate school program. The second thing that nearly drove me nuts was that so much of what I was being told, I knew had nothing to do with me. I knew enough about the people around because I'd been teaching there before I came in this department. And I knew that it really probably fit them a lot better than it did me. And because I have from a young child been very suspicious of other people's opinions of me, starting with my father, right? Uh, I push back and question quite a bit. But the thing that really drove me crazy was I could not figure out a way to contribute who I uniquely was because I was being put into this system. Now, it wasn't that there weren't people who were caring and heartfelt about what they were doing, but I was clear that there were much better ways to go about getting to what they were after than the way they were doing it. That was my experience. What was yours? Well, that's, I'm glad you asked because I do want to share that with you right now. Now, we had, now I wasn't familiar, we didn't have the 360 uh, during my, I was in the Army from 83 to 2003. And um, we had this, this, uh, this form called the Dash One. And it was the support form for your annual efficiency report. And you talk about it in your later chapters about there's a structure that, that is supposed to be there for everybody in the organization, but how you fill it out is uniquely yours. And so there are three parts to this dash one. Part A was what are your roles and responsibilities, which pretty generic because something had to get you into that position. But the real important parts were parts B and C. Part B was, okay, Carol, I work for you. And here's what I'm going to accomplish over the next 12 months. These are my objectives. I get to decide them. And you as my, um, evaluator or reader get to have the final say to make sure they're in line with the organization. And part C was 12 months later, we would actually fill out what I did. However, that's what I would call the pen and ink version of the, the performance appraisal. Now, what we were required to do as junior officers is every three months, I would sit down with you and you would do a pencil version of how you were going to write part C and how you were going to evaluate me. And you would have that conversation with me. And, and I might say, well, Carol, the reason I can't do what you're expecting me to do is X, Y, Z. And you would say, oh, well, I didn't know that. Or you would say, okay, Tom, I understand where you are, but um, here's the reason, here's something else to round out the story that could help you uh, understand why you're you're not meeting the mark per se. Now, before that, so that's every three months, and I would call that the pencil inversion, the quarterly review. And but as day to day operations went by, we had a, this, this phrase, this metaphor, if you will. 
uh, called Footlocker Counseling. So if you can imagine the World War II barracks and at the end of the, the bunks, you have a footlocker and you're sitting at the end of that bunk and I'm sitting on that footlocker and, and your, your coach, your advisor, your friend, you, you don't like those words in your book and I don't remember. Oh, you talk about it as a resourcer. That person comes down and sits next to you and says, okay, let's, how's things going? And they just have a very informal conversation. And that's really where the real learning happens is those day-to-day conversations. So that was my experience in my mm-hmm. first several years. Go ahead. I know that ties into a number of parts of your book. Because well, you're right. It does. And I think what's important to look at here is that each of these are based on a completely different belief system. And that's what's not apparent to people. They think some feedback's probably good, others isn't so good. And they come from what I call a paradigm. So one paradigm comes out of the work that they did in behavioralism is study of rats in a maze. And if you manage rats, it's a really well done research method. If you manage humans, you actually end up operating with information that has the following beliefs to it, that you cannot see yourself. There's no such thing as internal processing that only other people can tell you what you do uh, and do how well you're doing it. Third, that there are some best practices, something that ideally everybody should get to. And fourth, that the process of you giving, and whether it's you individually or a set of people, it will be objective, which it couldn't be for you. So that's the beliefs that are within the idea of giving feedback, even in the military model, because they were all based on the same work that John Watson did to design how you got other people to do what you needed for them to do. The belief system that I'm working out of and have built organizations for 42 years, I haven't built them, I've supported people building them, um, is based on a completely different set of beliefs, which is that human beings are unique and distinctive. You can have no generic pattern that everyone should meet. And if you do, what you're doing is diminishing the very thing that humans have to offer, which is something that comes from their own personal agency. Secondly, that it, being able to see themselves accurately, which is um, one of the complaints about uh, why you need feedback, is actually a capability problem, not an innate hardwired problem. And the more it is you have other people tell you something, the less not only can you trust yourself, but the less you can see because you begin to see through other people's eyes, not your own. Um, The other thing is that the process of learning to be able to see who you are uniquely is in itself one of the most important developmental processes uh, because learning to be able to stand in your own shoes and look and see your your effects, what do I cause? How, How does that go a particular way? Is such an important characteristic. I mean, you think about in a military setting, if you can't see the effect you're having on Let's even say you're a a sergeant training new recruits. You are doing things which other people would say were crazy, but they're designed to produce the effect of people being able to be self-reliant and to be able to be depended on by their colleagues. If you begin to do what you're told, whether you can see that effect, then you aren't going to be much of a soldier in the field. So this ability to believe people can be developed and that it's core is fundamental, completely different paradigm. And I call that the regenerative paradigm because it's based on this idea of everything is unique. So when you're talking about your experience, it's self-contained within a paradigm. And one of the things about paradigms is we are so immersed in them, we can't tell that we have cognitive biases that are preventing us from questioning them. So one of the biggest cognitive biases, and I think this one, I'll be interested to hear how this affected you, is that if it comes from outside, it's objective. There is now so much research, unbelievably mounting weekly, literally daily, even Harvard Business Review is slowly not recommending feedback, is that the research shows that we do not see people objectively We see them through a series of things. One of them is projection. I tend to project onto other people what I can't see in myself. What I'm seeing out there is actually a mirror. The second one is that there are all sorts of biases which we're holding which prevent that from happening. And one of the biggest ones is racial and gender bias. 
And when you look at the feedback studies that have been done on people of color and women, the, the critique is very much more um, um, negative and comes from a paradigm of, of a stronger set of standards. And when you actually ask psychologists to check what they're doing they and do testing of people, they find that what they're being given, whether they're a white person of color, what gender they identify with, it doesn't match who is there. So that's a hell of a lot of evidence to make you question feedback if you had another way. We'll get to that in a moment. So which bias did you want me to comment on? Uh, well, you were talking about projection earlier uh, because you said you kind of went back and looked at this before we got on air, that that was one of the things that jumped out at you, that people project what belongs to them onto the other person. You even commented, I think, on you knew that was happening. But no, you, well, like, you know what? I didn't know it at the time. So prior to, the, to this uh, radio show, Carol and I had a brief uh, moment to chat, and I shared with her that that um, one of her premises, she, I believe she has six premises, and these are in the uh, second half of the book. She talks about projection as one of them. And, I, and this is one of the enlightening moments that I had. I was reading the book. And it's like, oh, yeah, I remember that happening to me. It was a hugely negative experience. It's what solidified uh, my uh, acquiescing, for lack of a better word, to agreeing that feedback, as Carol um, points out in her book, no more feedback. Um, now, I would argue that Carol doesn't really, and she says this is in one of the chapters too, she's not saying there's no feedback, but she's, I would, and if, correct me if I'm wrong, you're just trying to get us to look at it from a different point of view. And I believe that big point of view is you want to make sure that the, we're shifting the accountability and the responsibility to that person because we trust them enough. We want them to be self-managing. And um, to go circle back to the, the whole Army scenario, I mean, think about our environment. We had to work in an environment where the person you reported to might not be there the next day. It's just the way it was. And we all knew that. And we all understood that. So we're always looking out. Um, it was a culture of trying to help everybody work together in teamwork. So there's a whole different spirit there. And when you were talking about belief systems and, you know, for us, I felt like the belief systems were common. If you joined an all-volunteer force, you're joining because you want to join this organization for the same reasons as everybody else. And I believe that should be true, whether it's the Army or you're working for IBM or it doesn't matter. You, you, you've gotten there because you, you have the same set of values. Therefore, which, which is entirely different than the competencies that you were uh, evaluated on way back when at San Jose State. Um, but let's circle back to this thing. What, what I really believe you're trying to get people to do is to realize that, again, you're, you're my evaluator or you're my rater, and you're, you're saying, you know, Tom, you need to really be responsible for your career. You need to be good at managing yourself, and you have to learn these skills. You have to learn to be self-reflecting. You have to be learn, learn to be self-observing. You touch on them at the end of your book. So what, that's one of the things why I love the Army so much is because I believe they took us through the system where they told us we were responsible for our career. So if you want to piggyback on anything I just said or yeah. talk about what it takes to maybe – do you train me to be self-reflecting or self-observing, or do you expect well, that I'm a, oh. So I train dogs. I don't train humans. <laughs> okay. uh, I develop humans. So first, Fair let enough. me tell you that every organization that I work in gets rid 100% of feedback. It disappears. So just so you're, I'm clear, I'm not saying well, I would like you to do better at feedback or have a different view of feedback. I believe few, and feedback itself comes off of the idea of how machines work. You know, if you've ever worked in um, an assembly plant or been near anything that has to have governors on it, so things don't spill over, we know that the mechanism that triggers the governor to shut off the overflow valve is called a feedback mechanism. It literally means to shut it down. And I give the history of where the term came from and how it accidentally got transferred into being used on humans. And so let's just interject for a quick second. So in her book, she talks about closed systems for machines and open systems for people. Please continue. Right. So if you want to really understand the meaning of feedback and its effect on the brain, so there's research showing on the brain when people get feedback, they shut off their own self-reflection. It's not like they um, kind of listen and evaluate. Nope, they shut off 
especially with an authority figure. And so we're doing damage actually to people's self-reflective capacity because that ends up in a, a way that becomes neural network wired if it happens often. So what I found is getting rid of it, you substitute what I call a developmental organization and you build infrastructure. So I'm going to give you an example. I think that helps people. Um, seventh generation, which is a non-toxic paper products, personal care products. Um, I joined them, maybe it was 10 years ago now. And they had lots of these kind of processes going. And I said, well, how do you feel about, and because this was a leader who I would say would fit your definition of serpent leader or green leaf's definition, because he cared deeply about human beings. He cared about planet and society too. But he, he said, okay, what would it look like if we built a developmental organization? So whether well, three things you have to put in place, there are many more, but three really core ones. One is you have a regular ongoing development process that is not telling people they need to do something, but working with them in a way they discover how to do it in their real work. In that case, we met a day a month with everybody in the company. And they were introduced to concepts that do not exist in the behavioral world. They exist only in the world of beliefs that humans have an intrinsic capacity to be able to see themselves and be self-managing without anyone ever telling them. But we have a culture which works against that. We have parents who tell us when we're doing well or not. We have schools which tell us when we're doing well or not. We have jobs which do that, the military, the church. And so we have so deeply ingrained that we can't see that we've shut off that part of our brain. So if you instead start to build the infrastructure where people are regularly developed, not trained, because if you go in telling them, by the way, I am not an expert. Thank you for thinking you should introduce me that way. I don't believe in experts because that's a model that says only somebody who knows more than you can tell you something. So I walk in as a person who's still in a, a journey, just like you described yours, still learning. I happen to be slightly ahead in capability in that arena to be able to design process. Like you find things about yourself you didn't know were possible. And then next month we do more. And next month and for the rest of your life, you're in a process like that, which means you go so far beyond anything people could give you a, a feedback. You're limited by what other people can see otherwise. So that was the first arena. Um, the second one is that you have to connect people to the external world, connect them to customers, stakeholders, so that they're not answering what you referred to earlier. I say, well, boss or you know, leader, I now understand what you want. There would never be that kind of conversation. The direction comes from consistent with the corporate direction, a set of stakeholders, which you actually make promises to physically, directly to people in the market. Um, and we can come back and do some examples of things like that too. But the third thing is you move all people who are in hierarchical roles into flipping them into resourcing roles, where it's their job to build this capacity. No longer is their job to actually tell people how they're doing or rank them, but help them look at themselves, help them build plans. This kind of thing is what I call a developmental organization because you're developing the market. By the way, my clients grow 35 to 65% a year in revenue. Their margins double and triple, and these are in low-margin retail businesses often. Sometimes they're in higher margin. But so the impact of making this move from something comes at me to I give something out, that I'm being developed regularly, is a radical shift. Well, there's a, um, I've got a couple notes that I want to talk to you about. All but, right. And we've got maybe a couple minutes to break, but I want to go to break early because of that so that we can not uh, interrupt this chain of thought. So with that said, you're listening to the Voice America Radio Network. This is the Your Evolving Leadership Journey Program. Today's guest is Carol Sanford, and we'll be right back after this break. Thank you very much. it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. 
Tom works with leaders, something he consistently sees is their struggle with engagement and retention, then their frustration with having to repeat the employee development process again and again. What most people don't know is the answer lies in love. Once they realize that they simply need to apply the golden rule, the results are surprising. They start bringing out the best in others. They develop confident, capable employees, and they find they have more fun and freedom and less stress in their lives. Perhaps most importantly, they satisfy what they've been craving. Now they've created the culture that they and their team have always wanted. This is when synergy takes over, and the results are astounding. The first step is critical. When you exhibit the self-awareness and humility that shows you need to learn and improve continuously, you set the example and encourage others to follow. To learn more, visit Blackhawk Leadership Development at blackhawkspeaks.com. That's blackhawkspeaks.com. Did you know that less than 2% of women-led businesses grow to more than a million dollars a year in annual revenues? Sarah Roach Lewis is dedicated to helping women shatter the million-dollar milestone. Sarah talks to women who have already achieved it. It's candid conversations about the highs and lows that come with building a seven-figure business and beyond. Whether you're just starting out or insanely close to hitting your million-dollar mark, tune into Breakthrough, Mondays at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Business. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective, plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite hosts. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access, all the time. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network. listening to Your Evolving Leadership Journey. To reach the program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. If you have questions or comments about the program, you may send an email to tom at blackhawkspeaks.com. Now, back to Your Evolving Leadership Journey. Welcome back to your Evolving Leadership Journey with your host, Tom Crea, and today's guest, Carol Sanford. So far, we've been talking about her book, No More Feedback, and some of the things that her, what's taken through her on her journey and some of the things on my journey, and we've had a good discussion so far. Now, Carol was talking about some things that had to do with um, just the way her, her systems would have no feedback whatsoever. Now, I do want to share, Carol, with you. Um, when I was running ROTC, we started off every year, we would go to this place called the Leadership Reaction Course. And I think this parallels with the example that you gave uh, with the students in the, the control group and the experiment group in your book uh, in Pennsylvania. And so what we would do at this Leadership Reaction Course, imagine there's a group of six people and there were 12 stations. And so everybody would get a chance to be the leader twice during the day. So you'd go to station number one, and you were inevitably given a challenge you couldn't do. A couple, couple two-by-fours, a 55-gallon drum, all sorts of things, ropes. And, and the bottom line is, is that it was almost impossible to succeed at the mission. And I forgot the time, but let's say you were given 15 minutes to do it. You went through the process. And at the end of the process, like I believe your experimental group, the, the cadre person the evaluator, if you will, didn't say a word, but the five people or the six people in the group would talk to each other about how well they did and didn't do and how could, how could they do better. And then you would rotate and the next person was the leader. And then you would do the same thing at the end. Now, if at the end, if, if the, if the cadets didn't say something or, you know, and the cadre person really had an observation, they would give it. But like your experimental group in Pennsylvania, the cadets were doing their own self-evaluating and self-managing. So your thoughts? Well, there are a couple of thoughts. Um, I, I don't know enough of the context and the structure of the research and all that truly matters. I was working with nine-year-old boys, right, in my experiment and helping them look at whether they were telling the truth or not about something. And the thing that 
that is not in your example is we allowed them to invent, design, and it may be, and go go do something else, and they made it harder as a result. They kept getting more demanding. To me, one of the most important things about it, it, well, there's one other thing, which is that in organizations now, that was one of my early pieces of research working on my doctorate, right? You know, I was trying to understand this idea. Um, but they were not in a developmental process where someone was continually educating them about how to see themselves, see their effects. And so it was kind of, I'm going to call it a little more than probably it really is. So please feel free to react to this. It's more static. It's like, here is kind of an artificial construct of something everybody knows you're not going to be able to do. You don't get to do it but once because you know what the thing is now. And so it's a bit artificial and static. And so to me, it's missing the core ingredients I was talking about before the break to really be able to get rid of feedback. Because under your condition, the, the platoon sergeant or whoever is leading this thing can come back in. If they aren't doing something in my system, they don't do that. But the real reason is because the, if you, the reflections, which is what I try and get people to switch to, and I'll tell you why, remind me to tell you why reflections, um, come from the effect on people in the market who are not in your circle. So in the sec- section you're talking about, people are in one section. They don't have any external reason. They have to make it work for somebody. That is not in a business, you got to make it work for somebody. Somebody decides whether you get to stay in business. That becomes the interaction and exchange. Plus, I increase the demand people um, can and are invited to place on themselves. Where, like, we had one guy who committed um, because there was a, a series of grocery markets, this was in Europe, who were having so much trouble with point of sale because they were small, they weren't able to buy the big SAP and all those kind of entities. Well, this guy committed to helping find a way that these small mom and pop stores would be able to manage point of sale, manage inventory and so forth. And he pulled together a team of people. Now that's very different than somebody saying, let's sit down and talk about how Tom, which was his name also is doing and how he's meeting the, the ability to rise his challenge. And instead, had the customer come in and tell them, or they went out to the customer and said, what's changed for you? What's different about your business? What else do you feel like you need to do next? Think about the difference in will that happens for a person who is talking to a small shop owner or a group of them and is looking at the effect of his own actions on them versus an artificial setup where you say, well, what could you have done better and so forth? There's, there's not much will building in that. So to me, if you don't create, that's why I said my third thing was, I think, or maybe it was second, you have to create an external connection. You have to have something you're serving. I mean, that's the core of what I understand about servant leadership. You are being in service of something that's not in your circle, but is in the circle you serve that is beyond you. So that's one of my um, comments on is the example you give. I can see how in the military that can do some kind of training, but it's not going to give you the open-ended next promise to these people and the next one, the next one, and how you have to grow you and divide a development plan. Because this guy, he was a line operator inside of a deodorant line. So it's at that level people are making these massive commitments. He had to pull together a team. W.R. Gore does this also, where people commit to building jackets that firemen will never die in. Now, think about the will that gets built in you when you're engaging with the firemen who are using what you design. So if you aren't creating that external connection and the ongoing development to deal with the stress, it's not just an impossible challenge like yours was. This is a life or death for the firemen. So that's what I think you build to build a developmental organization. And you complete, you, you no longer need the internal feedback because people are getting the experience of their, their work and the effects in the world. What do you think of that? I think it, I, I, I'm definitely going to come back at you, but uh, I like it. I think it's great. Um, let me ask, let me remind you, you wanted to talk about reflection and I'll go through oh. my notes. 
All right. So um, we talked about where the metaphor of feedback comes from, right? It's advising the governor that better shut down and stop the overflow. And I give tons of examples, the brain research that shows how that's exactly what does to your brain. In my developmental organization systems, people set up teams. They're going to be thinking partners with them. Now, the thinking partner or resource idea where you're returning people to their own thinking assumes you don't know anything. It assumes you have a reflection. Just like you and I are talking right here, you say, well, what do you think? And so I, I'm, not gonna tr- I'm not trying to convince you, well, maybe a little bit, but what I'm doing is giving you my reflection on what you just said, and you're giving me your reflection. And neither of those are intended to stop you thinking what you're thinking. They're intended to build something. So when I have an opinion, which I have to remember may be a projection, and it may be inside of competencies that have nothing to do with this human being is, I have to guard against being the one who shuts off their uniqueness, shuts off their opportunity to see themselves rather than see me. So I always say, if you have something to say to somebody, say, would, would you be open to a reflection? But the reflection means I don't ask you to accept this. I don't demand you see this as true. I want you to evaluate it right now from the minute we start. I want you to keep yourself looking at you. And I'm just a person over here with an opinion. Very different point of view. All right. Well, look, I got to share this with the listeners because... I have a whole list of notes, pages and pages, and I didn't even get to page two um, because I knew this was going to be a fun conversation because it is a, a, a topic, and I'm going to use a word that I know Carol doesn't like, that I'm passionate about, and she's going to say that's not a good word, um, and that's okay. Well, it's a great word. It's just oh. not a very good uh, an emotion to, because you know what passion means? It comes from hurting and being in pain. Right. It's literally that root. So I just always think it's not what people really mean. It's perfectly a good word if that's what you mean. Maybe I'm in pain because I haven't quite figured this out until I read your book. Okay. No. So let's get back to being a little more serious here. Um, I wanted to – so I want to close out what she said about reflection because at the very end of her book, I believe in one of the last two chapters, she talks about a great story of how she worked with somebody in the inner city, and this gentleman just kept asking Carol for validation, and she just resisted and – He was a kid. He was 15 years old. Okay, go. You want to? I, I'll, no, no. Go ahead. I want to hear oh, no, your okay. version of it. So, so, so the point of that story is, is she she didn't want to give the answer. She wanted the persons to come and figure to the conclusions themselves, and and that's one of the best things you can do. And um, and as I was saying in that muddy cornfield example, that story, I needed my lieutenants to be able to think for themselves, and so I was asking questions, questions to get them. They were provocative, of course, but to get them to think about what it is that they could be do because because I wasn't going to be able to be there all the time. Or maybe I was going to be gone entirely and they needed to be able to continue without me. So the point is, is, is you're, you're trying to grow people as holistic, as Carol says in her book, as whole persons and getting them to be self-reflecting and self-observing. We've got to come back to that because um, that's something they drilled into us in the Army. Um, what if a person isn't self-reflecting or self-observing? Then what do you do? That's well, a capability. It's not a thing. It's okay. not like you are or you aren't. I have never met any, well, I, maybe one person who had a real difficulty ever becoming, and because what self-reflective means is I divide myself into two aspects. One that is me doing things, causing effects. The other is watching me doing things, causing effects. And then if from that perspective, I can learn to see what's driving me because much of it is inside my mind, inside my emotions, and I have to learn to see that. I don't just see my doing. I have to learn to see um, in my mind. And then I have to learn to set aims which are different and then watch me how much I'm changing from where I used to be to where I want to be. That doesn't happen overnight. We have, If you think about what we've done with kids, so long we've told them whether that's right or wrong, teacher right or wrong, all the way along, people don't know how to do it, but it's not um, it's it's not fixed in them from birth. And I have found pretty much universally people want to do this. Now, I also find often they're frightened because they've been told over and over again. I was told as a child that I didn't know my own mind. 
that I was wrong because I wasn't racist enough. That's the family I grew up in. I was indoctrinated to be racist. And something in me, thank the Lord, knew that that was not a way to go. So I argued in my head. I eventually learned to shut my mouth and not do it out loud. But that process for most of us, we don't get lucky enough to learn to have our own opinion. And by the way, it's not giving people the opportunity to figure out the answer like my answer. It's to be able to figure out an answer better than the one I would have figured out if I had been telling them the answer. Right. And one of the comments she makes in her books is like, nobody's going to know you better than you. You're the one who's your best uh, evaluator. I'm being careful with my words. I know everybody gets nervous when words are on me. I say, that's a good thing. Look and see what you mean. (laughs) Yeah. I wonder why, Carol. All right. Well, look, this is fun. So let's keep going. So when I gave you the example of the leadership reaction course, I I understand that was kind of a closed static system. Uh, Good point. I would, I would just share with you, not to defend it, but the point there was really to, to instill this sense of teamwork. So let me go on to a more open example. Okay. Um, we called this the after action review. You, uh, the listeners, you might have heard of something called the after action report. You write your report, you send it into management, and somebody looks at it and gets stuffed in a folder, and you never get any feedback. <laughs> um, or even reflections. <laughs> any reflection on your input. But here was the great thing about the after action review. And I believe, I think in your examples in the book with DuPont and various other things, I'm sure you'll be able to talk to, what we would do is we would do this major exercise and everybody involved, at least the key leaders would be there. And anybody who had something of, of import to say, we would go, and this was blocked time after the exercise to reflect. And in this operations tent. We would go through the entire operation. And the the great thing for me is the Army instituted this in the early 80s. So I experienced it through my entire career. And the other great thing is that corporate America started picking up on this in the late 90s, uh, because it is very valuable. And so this exercise this after action review, you could be the most senior person in the room. But when you walk into that tent, you took off your rank. And if the lowliest private were in there, and he says, I have a I didn't like the way this went in the exercise, or that went in the exercise and it applied to you, you you put on your big boy, your big girl pants and you took it because you didn't take it personally. It was for the good of the organization. So perhaps that is a better example. And, and I think it's one of the best experiences I ever had in the military was that after action review process because it brought people, it made people feel more open about commenting. It made it a learning environment. And, and I just thought it was a great <laughs> reflection mechanism. Go ahead. <laughs> Yeah, no, I can see why that felt meaningful to you. And let me give you a framework for making sense of that and why I would never trash it at all. Because one of the things that people say when they say, I had great feedback experiences, is we have bad experiences in our life, which you pointed out I started my book with, and now I'm kind of wishing I hadn't. But anyway, we have bad, and then we have better experiences. And usually we're holding on to the better experience versus the bad one. And the minute we do that, we feel really good and defensive about that this is better than that other stuff you're talking about. What we don't have is the ability to see what other paradigm, how we could think about it, that we would get something even more profoundly developmental. So in your example, there are a couple of things missing from what I'm, and I love that you're doing these examples because I think I can use them to help people see what else could be added. And that's what I want to do is talk about how if we stick with the better versus the bad, we don't get to the developmental. So one of the things that was missing is those things that people were reflecting on were based on goals that were set that they probably were not involved in. Am I right? No, no, they were involved. Okay, so that's that's at least better. Were the and I don't know whether they were military operations or whether they were contributing to something. I have a, a little trouble with military because it usually means somebody loses and somebody wins, and that's not how my stuff is structured. But let's ignore that part for right now. If what we do is people agree they're going to make some huge contribution, like this guy I'm talking about, Colgate Palmolive in Europe, and you get a team of people. They have made, they have gone and assessed what was needed as a team. They have put together a developmental plan. They have worked out with the customers what they're going to create. And then they are doing reflection all along. It's not, so the first thing is, it's not at the end. It's not after the action. It is weekly and probably at the end of every meeting. And it's designed based on 
what you know the effect is going to be external to the system. I don't know who your external people were in the after event. It was like, and I can tell why it built teamwork and made people feel like they could trust each other because it was about how you affected each other. It wasn't so much about how you affected world peace or, you know, some nation or something. It could have been once in a while. But there's another thing about the way you talked about the, quote, reflection we're going on, which was they said what they liked, didn't like. And I don't let people do reflections that way. I teach them to say, how did we make progress on this today? And what do we need to do next? No, poor poor choice of words on my part, but go ahead. All right. Well, it's all right. Uh, I think it'll still allow me to say what I need to say. And then I'd love to hear anything you feel like I was wrong about. Push on me and see if I need to clarify. But the idea of moving from polarized evaluation, good things, bad things, right, wrong. um, And that process is not developmental reflection. It is particleized or segmented reflection. So the process of reflection is an ongoing process which happens regularly. It's built into the end of every meeting, the end of every event, in the, mo- in the process, not at the end, but in the process. And it's always asked in terms of evolutionary questions. How do we evolve toward where we're going? What do we need to do next? You don't say, what did we not do and where do we get it wrong? That becomes information for what we need to do next. And it literally rewires the brain to start to see everything is in motion. Everything is able to have its next round of something. Um, The other thing was there are in my systems no hierarchy. So it isn't even the person who has to, you know, take it. Because the other thing is none of this is ever directed toward a person. It's all directed toward the, uh, the objective, and people evaluate on the same position at the same time. So how did we accomplish or move toward what we're doing? What do we do next? So there's no person that is ever it's directed toward. You use these frameworks, which I talk about, which allow you to move beyond thinking that it's about me talking to you, which is the other problem with feedback. There is no person does anything all alone that may not work. It's always a part of a system. And if you're trying to evaluate an individual in that process, which is where feedback comes from, you're just way off base and actually being able to make the whole work. All right. Not, that was a lot I was trying to cover in a short period of time. What, what didn't make sense or where do you disagree? Talk it's not that I disagree, don't disagree or agree. It's more of when I framed it, I, it probably wasn't clear to you. Like in the example, um, there was an opposing forces. So that was the external domain, if you will, that we were, we were operating against. And unfortunately, when you're in the middle of an operation where you're yeah. doing a, a uh, uh, mock battle, you can't stop every 10 yeah. minutes or in that sort of thing. So, so I understood your points. Um, right. So that's, that's okay. not what a business is, but yeah. 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 Okay. So let's move on to something else that I, for me, goes deeper into why we're here, why people are listening. And let's get back to Greenleaf and his essay. And for the benefit of the audience, I want you to know Greenleaf's best test. In his 1970 essay, he wrote these three points. And and you have similar points in your book, Carol, and and I want to segue to those. So for Greenleaf, it was, do those served grow as persons? Do they, while being served, become healthier, wiser? freer, more autonomous, more likely themselves to become servants? And finally, what is the effect on the least privileged in society? Will they benefit or at least not be further deprived? So for me, I love that. I think it's a great, I, I didn't know about Greenleaf when I was in the army, and uh, mm-hmm. but I believe that's what we live by. And I believe because one of our values was selfless service, I had some great um, what I used to refer as mentors, and now I'll start thinking of as resourcers because <laughs> that's a yeah, resources, right? <laughs> um, but at any rate, so if you want to comment on that and segue yeah. into the part of your book where perhaps you want to talk about the three core competencies, or go ahead. Um, well, one of I think there are a couple ideas I'd like to build directly off of Greenleaf because I. I admire so many things about what he was doing. And as I said, right, um, the um, way I describe what regeneration means, and I would then add one thing that to I think to Greenleaf, which is I describe what we're working on is evolving the capacity of those we work with. So he's talking about uh, they're more skilled, they're more able, you know, they have more capability. 
Um, I'm talking about a, a very similar thing when I talk about evolved capacity, but there's one thing he doesn't mention. And I think I said this when they interviewed me before, which is uniquely, not generically, because too often the answer to the question is we're evolving their capacity to meet what the ideal standard is. You know, the Aristotelian idea of there's some ideal man or even a little bit platonic. So I always say, are they evolving the capacity that meets the uniqueness and distinctiveness of that entity and its ability to evolve a system? The second thing that I would look at there, and these are not in the book directly, um, so we're adding a little. People go read the book and they still get a little more, is that I think you have to move beyond self-actualizing to system-actualizing. So when people work on helping individuals become better that's good. I mean, they, yeah, we evolve a person's capacity. The real question for me is most of it is a system that's causing things to be held back. And I don't want to ask the question, who am I leaving behind? I want to ask how the system has to move so it can move and lift everything. That's a very different nature of working. Then you will grow individuals, but you have to work on the system, the social justice system, the health and ecosystem. Even the uh, world um, peace kind of system. If you don't work on those things as a system, you can never grow the individuals in it, and you will always leave some people behind because some people will rise to the challenge. Well, look, we're almost done. We've only got a couple minutes left. And look, take about 30 seconds just to tell the audience how to find you and what you do and anything you want to say about yourself. So as I said before, I'm an educator. I'm not a consultant, uh, but I have many different routes for education. I mean, the, the, the one that's for students is through a couple of universities I teach at. Um, I also run business programs for 10 to 12 businesses at a time over one to three years, depending on what we're working on. Um, and they learn all of these kinds of things I'm talking about. I have change agent education systems with, I've got people who've been with me for 37 years now because there's no end to our learning about how to help people change. And that's where you learn how to be a resource. And a resource just means literally turn people to themselves as a source. I have four books, as you pointed out, that are still in print. And a new one will be out in um, March called The Regenerative Life. And it is for individuals. Uh, go to carolsanford.com and you can find out more. All right. Well, look, you can also go to yourevolvingleadershipjourney.com and I will, I've got links to Carol and, and all of her social media and her website. So please go there. Um, just to recap her book and what a great conversation we've had. Part one of her book is a technology of chain. Part two, feedback. Part three, downsides to feedback. Part Four is premises for designing development and work systems. And part five is the development alternative to feedback. You got to pick up the book. There's so much. There's no way we can cover it all. Thank you so much for being a part of this week's session of Your Evolving Leadership Journey. I appreciate it. And we look forward to listening, having you listen to again next week. Thank you so much, Carol. I appreciate you being our guest. My pleasure. All right. Thank you for tuning in this week to Your Evolving Leadership Journey. Be sure to join host Tom Crea for another edition next Monday morning at 6 a.m. Pacific Time and 9 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And have a great week.